Hi everyone, so instead of an ad this week on this Idol Weekend, I am instead going to do something different and I'm going to tell you that donating to the ACLU is a good thing to do. I don't currently work at the ACLU, but I used to. <laughs> uh, and I can tell you from experience that it's in an organization that does very, very good work. And in terms of management, it's probably the most well-run nonprofit I've ever encountered in my life. The reason why I'm saying donating to the ACLU is a good idea because the world is burning uh, just a little bit, uh, <laughs> especially with uh, with things like executive orders coming down. Uh, you know, there were, I, I think maybe, I think the number is three constitutional crises uh, sort of since Trump has taken office as of this recording. So if you want to do something with your money, I am going to go ahead and advocate that you send it on to the ACLU. You can, do, you that. can do that at action.aclu.org slash donate. Yes. There you go. Action.aclu.org slash donate. And you can also donate. I've heard this question uh, from several folks. You can donate uh, from another country. That is totally allowed. If you're worried, if you're not from the U.S. and you're worried about what's going on in the U.S., uh, you are absolutely allowed to uh, donate in uh, whatever currency uh, you have. So go ahead and do that. Action.aclu.com, I think. Org. Dot org. You got it. I, I used to make these websites. See, it's been a little while. Action.aclu.org slash donate. Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about Batman. Or more specifically, we're going to be talking about Rob's new thoughts on one of Batman's maybe slightly less renowned recent offerings. So Rob, you've been in Arkham Origins lately. You've been you've been in this and I know we've had We've had chats about Arkham Origins and some some of the less cool bits of it. I, it was something we talked about when we talked about sort of being graded in games and, and sort of feeling anxious because of, of grades and kind of knowing too much. So so tell me your thoughts now that you've had more time in, in uh, Arkham Origins. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I stand by sort of my problem with the constant feedback that we talked about in the fall. Like, it is a really... Um, it's a very aggressive game about like making sure that you always know you're playing a video game and like you're <laughs> always being scored. Uh, except to, instead of like Mario collecting coins, it's like uh, Batman like crushing skulls. That's that's the coin basically. <laughs> but he's like, not literally. killing anybody. But yeah, no, no, perish the thought. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how it feels too. Like you're you're flying around the city and like you look below and you see like groups of uh, groups groups of criminals. And it is kind of like coins. They're like candy you can go pick up. It's like, oh, do I want to go do this thing? Or do I just want to go down there and stomp those, like, 12 dudes? 12 dudes is a lot of XP. I'll bet I could really have a good brawl with those guys. Okay, I'll go deal. <laughs> That's kind of how it feels. Uh, and then you constantly get a score on, like, literally everything you do. And I had some problems with that in the fall. Uh, in, in that it was constantly, like, 
causing me to stop and feel like, well, you're a crappy Batman. Like you call like you're getting like the judges marks. Like, you know, imagine if you're watching the uh, like Christopher Nolan Batman films or something and like after he beats down a bunch of thugs, like suddenly it turns into an ice skating like scoring phase where like Batman just has to sit there in the parking garage while like, okay, now we're waiting for the judge for Estonia. And the judge from Estonia thinks, oh God, high technical marks, but there's just no no feeling, no spirit behind this beatdown. Uh, kind of phoned in, Batman. That was kind. That's kind of that was kind of my problem uh, yeah. with with Arkham Origins uh, at the start. And I think that is the, to a degree that problem persists. However, what I've come to appreciate lately as I sort of get back into it is that Arkham Origins provides you with a lot of tools to get better at the game to understand the mechanics uh, better sure and so as i was getting back into it i was getting a little frustrated at my at my low marks as batman <laughs> uh i was i was getting tired of being a superior vigilante and i really wanted to be like a legendary vigilante okay. like i am the knight Daniel. you want the s rank or the yeah. equivalent of s rank i see I yeah see. pretty much so i kind of stopped what i was doing for a little bit and went back to the Batcave, where you have a training, a series of training sims that, as you unlock these training routines, uh, illustrate key aspects of the game. And to get like uh, a like all three medals in each training sim, you have to do and combine a variety of game concepts, and you have to combine them all in one encounter. So you can pick these all up piecemeal, but. Uh, to to really like have a perfect run, you've got to sort of link all these things together. So, like for instance, you've got to in the course of a fight, uh, like do a ground takedown on the enemy you have stunned. You have to uh, counter two enemies simultaneously, uh, and you have to get a flow score higher than 14. So basically like a, a 14 or higher combo. Doing any one of those is trivial. Doing all of them in one counter, kind of tricky. <laughs> and what I really admired about this is that it really helped me understand a lot better how combat is supposed to work. Like especially as you introduce more enemy types, how are you supposed to flow through these encounters? What does the most efficient way to play look like? And how can you introduce variety but still like be effective? How can you do it gracefully? And Arkham Origins was really good at teaching me those, those skills, at helping me understand uh, those game mechanics. And... I think maybe what I just like here is the training room aspect. Maybe that maybe finding the scoring, even though the scoring was sort of what I'm finding with the scoring now is it keeps me honest. Like the scoring lets me know how well I'm carrying those lessons forward uh, and executing on the stuff I learned back in the training room. Hmm. But maybe what I really love here is just the training room is this fun place you can always go back and relearn important game mechanics. And that's actually really rare in most video games. Like, I think something that really puts me off of a lot of, like, Assassin's Creed games, for instance, is that it, they introduce new concepts once, like, in a mission. There's the mission, like, this is the mission where we're going to teach you about, like, 
uh, you know, a jumping assassination, you know, where you <laughs> sort of like strike from the sky and stab someone to death. Yeah. Uh, and then it's expected that you know how to do that. And then it doesn't necessarily like help you practice that skill. It doesn't give you a space to uh, practice that skill in conjunction with others. You just sort of have to uh, mix and match it as you go through the rest of the game. And what I find I do in a lot of games like that is I end up sticking to my my few core strategies of like mechanics I've really learned, moves I've really learned, and uh, I kind of leave the rest alone. And I really admire how these training rooms and the grading system kind of work hand in hand in Arkham Origins to give you space to go back, refresh yourself on uh, moves and mechanics that maybe you didn't understand so well when they were first introduced. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically like what I'm really digging here is that for, for all that I sort of dinged this game for like, it's constant like uh, score chasing mentality. Coming back to it and getting into it more now, it's really improving my enjoyment of the game because it's a it's encouraging me and giving me the tools to keep changing the way I play it, uh, which <laughs> is so important in an open world game. Yeah, that's that sounds super rad. No, I I will admit I I haven't played many of the Arkham games. I played. I played all of Arkham Asylum. And, that's you know, really that's the only it. great one. That's the yeah, only that's, great Yeah, that's what people Asylum, tell like, me. Arkham that's, game. that's what people tell me. Um, I didn't touch any of the others until I played a, just a tiny bit of Arkham Knight. And I thought, hey, this is, this is fun, I guess. I just am not super into Batman. That's kind of my, my main issue. I, I'll tell you, this is weird. One of my best experiences with Batman was in the Arkham 3DS game, the 3DS and PSP game. That was It was a Metroidvania game, a 2D game, sort of based on the, the Arkham look and feel, the sort of Arkham aesthetic, but it was like this really good little side-scroller that had a lot of good exploration and that sort of stuff. So that's where I'm at. That's, <laughs> that's where I've always kind of had a little hesitation. And Batman has always seemed like just very grimdark man who can't accept that he's really into kink but just won't he won't accept it like with the leather and the nipples and all the all that shit okay. and the mask the and nipples shit like were, the nipples were just one shitty movie okay all right i mean fine. yes that was that was total like fetish wear for it, sure like all all of the costumes kind of are though like they super are and it's like he's very mad because he can't just go to a fucking S&M club and get his jollies. Like, this poor man. Like, just accept yourself, dude. Like, you, there are plenty of people who will want to do the things that you want to do with them. But he, instead, he takes it out on, you know, crime doers who he breaks their skulls and they miraculously don't die. Like, it's just a weird thing. I guess it's just a weird thing I've never been super into. I, I will say, I will also say this. I think the the comics, the the new comics with like Poison Ivy and uh, what's her face Harley 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 Quinn, yeah are apparently rad and kind of gay and that sounds good. That's the thing for me. The Batman universe has always seemed like super queer, super kinky, but nobody ever 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 wants to acknowledge any of that. Maybe I'm just like sitting there being like, man, these people, they would all be very happy and not beating each other up if they just would. Would do the things that that they want to do. 
Okay, that's the weirdest take on Batman ever. I get it. I get it. But convince me. Convince me that this game is worth my time. It's worth actually kind of hanging out in, playing around in, Whoa. and just it, with my head canon as Batman as, as very repressed kink man. Maybe that's just what I need to do. Okay. Um, I don't think you're going to get your kink fix uh, in, okay. in this game. Sadly. Um, okay. But... You know, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would recommend this one. I don't. Although I don't know. So, I'm trying. Like, I need to go back and I need to look at the reviews that came out when this when this first arrived. Um, I remember people saying, "Oh, it's not as good as the first two. I remember this being kind of the runt of the litter, not being like, you know, I think it got like sixes and sevens out of ten, if that means anything right. in the world. Like, but, like decent scores, but not like, oh, the you know, this is game of the year edition that. A lot of people would say about the well, other and games. as I understand it, like there were also some major playability issues uh, hmm. with the game, sure, and so sure. like it was getting dinged pretty hard for uh, poor performance. Um, and I think there are some major PC issues. I think it may have only worked really well on PlayStation, which is kind of a familiar refrain given how Arkham Knight ended up turning out. Um, but yeah. I think it was it was partly that it wasn't a particularly polished release. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then it was kind of more of the same. It was like, oh, you liked Arkham City? Well, good news. We made it again. Um, sure. <laughs> however, I haven't played Arkham City in like five years. And so for me, it's like I'm coming back to it and I don't really see a massive qualitative difference between this and Arkham City. Sure. Um, like I think really Rocksteady kind of are the ones who screwed up the series when they broke from the uh, Asylum model. Hmm. Um, Arkham Asylum worked because it was a contained space. Um, it had like clear levels and uh, sequences you went through, and it wasn't constantly like forcing crap random encounters uh, on you every five feet. Yeah, this is a uh, pretty is... cool game. I really, really did enjoy it quite a bit. Yeah, time. and and when you constrain the space that way, it allows you, I think, to tell cooler more authentic like comic book stories right yeah, like yeah. you can create every level sort of reflects the villain who is uh who's taken it over like one of the great things about asylum is that the asylum keeps getting increasingly twisted and perverted uh by the people who are taking over sections of it yeah so it starts out it's just like the super gothic uh supermax facility and then it's sort of like in the midst of an ongoing hostage crisis and there's cops running around but like the criminals control parts of the grounds and then by the end like poison ivy has completely taken over a wing of the island and <laughs> yeah. it's turned this like nightmare jungle hellscape uh and joker meanwhile has basically like gutted the mansion and turned it into you know an apocalyptic funhouse. yep and that's that good. Cool. Yeah. And, it, and it's effective because you keep going through these same spaces. Like, you go through the central courtyard in Arkham Asylum like 20 times over the course of that game. And every time it's it's subtly like shifting yeah. uh, from, from what it was when you first saw it. And that's a really cool thing. These other games, it's kind of like, well, you're in the big city and, okay, go to the Joker place. Oh, it's all wacky over here, but you're only going to see that place once because it's like the warehouse where you fight the Joker the first time. And then you go somewhere else and it's like, oh, it's, it's Mr. Freeze's icy zone. <laughs> it's, and it, it, it's, it's the total amusement park thing. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think that, I don't think Arkham Origins so far, like, I don't think it's really betraying anything Rocksteady did. It's just sort of building on kind of the shabby foundation that um, 
that Arkham City laid down. And honestly, I think <laughs> so far I'm at least a little more entertained uh, by by Arkham Origins because at least like its setting for all of this is like in a like in a crazy Max Payne type blizzard. <laughs> Good. Um, like oh my goodness, everything's gone to hell. The only people on the street are criminals. Everyone else is just sitting at home with cocoa. Like criminals, <laughs> criminals rule the street. But it's not like you don't have this ridiculous pretense the way you do in Arkham City. That like <laughs> the way that Gotham City was like, man, crime is really out of control. We should seed all of the old downtown to prison. <laughs> we should, that's that is our solution. God, they could charge so much for that. Like, they would never. It just wouldn't happen unless you have a whole thing where the private prison complex is is actually taken over, like, entire rungs of government. I don't know. Well, just, there is, there, yeah. look, in Arkham City's defense, there's actually kind of a subplot about that. Like, oh, okay, okay. That's uh, like, kind of a, a major part of this is that Hugo Strange is this, like, um, Svengali-like figure. Who somehow convinces politicians by blackmail, by bribery, mm. uh, and by simple like perverted persuasion that like somehow this idea makes sense? And Bruce Wayne is the only person who's like, actually, I think this is a this is a policy loser. This is a uh, and everyone's stupid. like, Bruce Wayne, you're crazy. Stop, stop raining on everyone's parade. Just let us, just let us build the big wall around downtown. Yeah. it's an area the size of Manhattan, and we're gonna give it to criminals. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at least... <laughs> okay, so admittedly, admittedly, Arkham City's insane pretense has aged surprisingly well. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, like, hey. It's, it's really matured <laughs> in the, the bottle. Wall, huh? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of... Danielle, there's so many things that God. seemed very unrealistic uh, eight years ago oh, that suddenly are like, oh, wow, this game really fucking nailed it. This actually <laughs> Maybe happened. Arkham City is one of those games. I don't know. Uh, but Arkham Origins, I'm also just a sucker for it's Batman at Christmas time. That's kind like, of great. Yeah. It is. It's like, it's Gotham, but like everything's decorated for Christmas and like all the trees have like fairy lights in them and like there's garlands from the shop windows and it's kind of cool. Like Batman Returns had that going on. The movie had that going on too. And that's one of the best parts of that movie. Other than Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. And oh Danny DeVito, God, of course, as the penguin. As the yeah. very weird penguin. Yeah. He's a very weird penguin. I didn't like it. But I need to give that movie another shot. Because I, I heard someone describe it as like, you need to give it a chance as a dark, sad fairy tale. It, you know, yeah, Batman yeah. Returns is a Tim Burton movie. It's not a Batman movie. Right. The first right. Batman movie is a Batman movie. Yeah. Like by Tim Burton, it still has that element. But like the second movie is full on like, eh, I'm just going to use these characters to tell a classic Tim Burton story. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That that tracks for sure. For sure. Um, but uh, so I'm I'm I just kind of enjoy the like. I don't know. It's maybe part of it too is I just miss Boston a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah. And so, like, I go into Arkham Origins and it's like, ooh, it's frosty in here, and I better, <laughs> I better get my hot cocoa and and beat the shit out of these thugs. Yeah, um, that's what Christmas that's, is all about. Yeah, know? exactly. As, as Detective John McClane taught us so many years God ago. God damn right. Um, the <sighs> the true spirit of Christmas is throwing your opponent off the top of a skyscraper. That's right. Um, that's right. 
But I, so, but I'm, I'm playing this game and I'm starting to reevaluate sort of how it's handling things, like teaching you how it works. And I'm thinking about like, I feel like few games actually successfully do that. Like, how many games really create engaging and exciting um, instructional or tutorial modes that you'll want to return to that also succeed at teaching you and encouraging you to use uh, different approaches? I think, I think it's a pretty rare thing. It is a pretty rare thing. I'm, I'm now sort of struggling to think of... <sighs> something that really does that i mean are, are there i'm not a much of a fighting game player but are, are there parallels to that potentially like like training modes that actually are are good and teaching you like certain characters or certain things like that i just guessing i don't know does street no, I mean, fighter uh, do that maybe or, or well I... and i don't know enough about street fighter to say one way or the other like street fighter 5 has an incredibly robust training mode hmm. but i don't know if it counts as fun because what <laughs> sure like, it's like having it's like ha like 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 Danielle. It, it it's like if you had a combat droid in your apartment, <gasps> yeah, that you could teach to, like, and program to do whatever drills you wanted, yeah, as if it was another person. That's what Street Fighter Five lets you do. Okay, that's really cool if you want to like really learn some skills and get good at them. But it almost requires an Im immense amount of training to begin with, just to learn what drills you need to do. I see. Um, so it's not like, it doesn't feel like it's doing the heavy lifting of saying, okay, so, uh, in this matchup, you need to do X and in this matchup, um, you need to watch out for Y. It's not really doing that. So I'm not sure it really succeeds. Other games I think do have better challenges in their like story modes, but even there, it's kind of the, like, you're going through the story. Like now you've got to fight. Uh, this character and their difficulty has been turned up. So, you know, you got to get good at that matchup. But is it a thing you can easily revisit and practice and it will teach you things about the game? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm also, also just a guess, not something I've played a ton of, but the Metal Gear Solid VR mission stuff maybe is hitting at some of this. Uh, the, the sort of expansion pack to Metal Gear Solid 2. Hmm. I know some yeah. people liked it, but I, I'm I'm like racking my brain right now, really trying to think of of that distinct well, situation, and not a ton of games that I have gotten super into have this element to them for sure. Well, yeah, and I I sort of feel like um, you know, Metal Gear Four. I don't know how much Five delves into it, but do you remember Metal Gear Solid Four had that ridiculously <laughs> elaborate CQC system? Uh, yes, vaguely, like, vaguely. Yeah, it's Metal Gear Solid 4 is this weird, like, <laughs> it's an easy game to underestimate in part because it is so aggressively stupid. Sure, yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> but it's a decent shooter. It's a really good stealth game, but you have to really commit to the stealth path or else it turns into a pretty good shooter at the drop of a dime. And mm. then it's like, where'd my stealth game go? Yeah. But, and then, and this is where it gets weird. It's also a surprisingly decent hand-to-hand -hand combat simulator. Yeah? And that is entirely optional. Like, there's no reason you should be good at it. Like, you got a million guns. You've got your stealth abilities. You don't need to be, like, mixing it up with people, uh, you know, like your... Um, like your Batman. Gibson and DC <laughs> at the end of 
of Lethal Weapon. Oh um, yeah. God, is yeah. that really a is that really Gary Busey fights with him that long? I think God, it is. it is. And that's like thirty years ago, but yeah. Yes. God, Busey was like nimble. He was weird. He was a nimble man. Always, always years weird. Ago. Always a weird dude. Yeah. Oh yeah. But but surprisingly, surprisingly spry. Um, he could move. He had his moves. Yeah. Yeah. But so there's this one point where they sort of teach you the beginnings of CQC, and it's. Um, you know, it's basically like having Snake do a lot of like hand parries and attacks, and it's like even a little more elaborate than your typical fighting game, because uh, a lot of it is like I, I feel like what what I was internalizing while they were teaching it was like there's a lot of like quick parries and responses you can use to um sort of get out of grabs, and it sort of feels a lot like it's teaching you to like almost hand fight and 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 use like martial arts as Snake. And there's a lot of layers to that that the game's like never encourages you to actually use because you, you've got all the tools you need to avoid this incredibly elaborate and difficult to use system. And it was one of those things where if you tried to use it and it went wrong, you just felt dumb. You know, you <laughs> yeah. didn't, you, you like, it was, it, it was, you totally felt like you failed as the commando ninja and you didn't want to <laughs> do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I don't think it did have like ways for you to go back and train that stuff. So it was this weird thing where you could open up like, I want to say you could open up a series of like instructional cards breaking down all the elaborate like close quarter combat moves you could do. And then you close that and you try to remember as much as you could and you put it into practice. I don't, I, I, I think I've only met one person in my life who actually like did a lot with CQC. Most everyone else probably approached it the way I did, which was like, which was basically to say, "Okay, but I've got this silenced pistol, so <laughs> yeah, yeah." Oh, that I don't sense. think, I don't think there's a lot of games that that have uh, have these modes. I think maybe there are some racing games that maybe yeah. you could toss into okay. this mix. Like, I'm thinking about. The old Simbin games uh, hmm. that they did with, well, it might have actually been Slightly Mad Studios who made most of these games, but Simbin made a lot of games. Uh, the the um, GTR series was a really good uh, GT racing sim, and it had a lot of driver drills to teach you how to, you know, take different types of cornering complexes correctly. Yeah. Um. And you can meddle in all of these. And they were actually kind of fun. I think they really took it to the next level when they made Need for Speed Unleashed 2. I think it was Need for Speed Unleashed 2. Um, they might have just changed the name and just made it like Unleashed. <laughs> I don't remember. They made two games for two games in the Need for Speed series. The second one was really, really good. And that was a game where you could have a ton of, like, every corner on a track had, like, a score attached to it. And you could, like, you could get a perfect through the corner. And the game even had, like, two different types of perfection. Like, you could be sort of the type of driver I prefer to be, which is, like, your classic um, Grand Prix-style racer. Uh, very precise, very controlled, very efficient. And if you hit all your braking points and carried the perfect speed to the perfect line, you got a perfect score. Yeah. Or you could go the more 
uh, Fast and the Furious route <laughs> of doing a drift style run. And you could also basically power slide through corners and handle it that way. And it would assign, it would grade you on that curve, kind of. And so it kind of made every part of a track feel like its own event. Yeah. And you could, I guess it sort of encouraged you to go back to a lot of these different places and try different approaches, even after you'd won the races there. You know, you still felt like there's not, I'm not done with this track yet. There's still more for me to learn, more for me here to learn. Yeah. But that is still necessitating you going back to a racing mode. I think the this like I, I think it's an, it's a parallel, but I I'm just I'm I'm sort of racking my brain. I'm coming up empty for games that have made cool uh, like simulational challenges the way that um, the way the Batman does. I I have one and only one that I've been thinking of as you were talking about uh, GTR. And that is Crazy Taxi. The uh, the sort of challenge modes in Crazy Taxi always taught you. A, and this is just for the you know the um, home versions of the game. Uh, I played them one and two on the Dreamcast, and they had these like pyramid of skills, and you had all these weird skill things. Like there was bowling with cars, and you know going you know doing these weird platforming challenging challenges and sort of like swerving at a certain point they were all sort of distinct you know this is this specific thing that's going to teach you how to corner really quickly this is this specific thing that's going to teach you how to jump precisely in the in the second game those were ridiculously fun uh you could get medals in them and they always taught you a skill that would actually be super super useful in the game so this is like the one thing i can really think of that that hits that sweet spot of like this is teaching you a thing. This is teaching you a very specific thing. You're going to learn this thing. But also it's really fun and wacky and, and awesome. <laughs> Which is also like Crazy Taxi in a nutshell. Crazy this, Taxi secretly teaching so many design lessons. It really is such a brilliant game. Even though it's like wacky and goofy. It's it's brilliantly designed. God, the whole risk reward thing is so, so well done in that game. And the second one, I, people kind of slept on the second Crazy Taxi on, on Dreamcast. That game was fucking awesome. It was really cool and really good. And you had a jump button in it and it was great. And you should play it one day, someday in your life. If you can. I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah. But I mean, and I, I got the... What Arkham Origins is doing is unusual. It almost depends on you having a game that operates like that, where you can have discrete encounters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's not really something that a lot of games lend themselves to. Like, Dishonored assigns you a score at the end of the level, and you can run that level again and again. But it's not... But that's a much bigger commitment than just, like, going into, like, the holodeck and, you know, saying, Computer, uh, melee simulation. <laughs> you know, right. challenge level hard. You can't do that with you can't do that with most games. Most games don't lend themselves to that. Yeah. At the same time, I think a lot of games do lend themselves to a certain monotony of efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think Ar Arkham Origins finds a way around that by in part by using the score system, but also But also because it, it, it has a lot of simple moves built on simple mechanics that can be like sort of chained together in these in these different ways. 
Uh, I guess like I was thinking there for a moment of like how boring Bioshock got for me <laughs> because I stopped experimenting with skills and I just became like, well, if I'm in the mood for fire, I'll use fire. And if I'm in the mood for electricity, I'll use electricity. But for the most part, I'm going to use one of those two. Uh, I'm going to use very crude, simple one-two attacks uh, with my favorite powers and guns. And that's how I'm going to get through this game. Yeah. And that works, but it made it really tedious. Whereas in Bioshock 2, they sort of force you into different situations where you have to use um, more of the tools that are gi- that you're given in order to succeed. And that's a, that's a tricky thing. Yeah. Arkham Origins solves it by, basically, if you want to just, you know, left-click your way through this game, you can do that. It'll be hard. It'll be kind of boring. But you, you could, I guess, do it. But it also gives you all these places you can learn to do something different. Um, where I would find that really useful as well is like I think a lot of RTSs and maybe even turn-based games don't really have interesting scenarios that teach you how to use different approaches effectively. Yeah. Um, and that can also make it very hard to break out of your default style of play. So that's sure. an area where this stuff should maybe be looked at a little more closely because um it's very good to to give give players a, a harmless and effective uh, place to teach them uh, cool ways to, to to engage with the game. I agree. I like effective and cool ways to engage with the game, and I also have just been fantasizing about playing Crazy Taxi ever since I thought of Crazy Taxi. Got to get those difficult fares. God, that's such a great game. Do you take I... Do you take the safe fare or do you take the really hard? Oh, and then you got to like plan your routes because you know the city pretty well. And you're like, all right, I'll take this yeah. easy orange one. And then it's going to bring me to a blue one or a green one. And then you're going to, oh, God, it's so good. Oh, well, now that I'm all fired up, I think it's time for us to go right into our mailbag. Right into the mailbag. I don't think we're talking to any any sponsors this week. Just donate to the ACLU if you want to. <laughs> all right. Uh, you want me to read this first monster? Yeah, I think you should go for it. This is a, this is a really, really great letter, a really, yeah. really good one. So, Rob, you know what? Actually, why don't we break it up? Why don't we break it in half uh, somewhere? Just because this is a big one. This is a big old, big old yeah. letter. Let's. Uh, I'll. I'll just actually. Put some... Could you could you clap for a moment? Because I've got a I've got a pair. So I was I was in the middle of cutting this down actually when we when we called. So why oh, don't yeah. you clap on the track and you can uh, oh. edit out the part where I'm editing the letter a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. One, two, All right. Okay. I'll I'll just redo the whole. Yeah. The whole swing back. 
Oh, man. Yeah, on that note, I, I just, man, I just feel like playing Crazy Taxi. It's such a such a rad game. Such a good game. Such a classic. And now that I'm all fired up about it, I think it's time for us to go right into our mailbag. We're not going to actually uh, have a word from our sponsor this weekend. We're just going to say, hey, if you want to throw some bucks towards the ACLU, you should do that. That's a good idea. Uh, so we have one very, very big letter. Uh, really, really special. Really, really it's a great letter. letter. It's a Neov letter. So you know it's going to be really, really good. Rob, if you want to uh, tag team this one, it might right. be a good idea. So I'll, uh, yeah, I'll just pop in here, make a bunch of spaces. That feels about right. And uh, take it away, uh, Rob. Right. Hey, R&D. I think I've often disconnected from a lot of wargaming because I am a second-generation German immigrant with close ties to World War II. I think that because of my family's experiences, I have a very different relationship with war than most Americans, and that this relationship has forced me to confront both the horrors of war and the issue of collective guilt very personally and deeply. My family lived through World War II in a way that I don't think most Americans can fully grasp. My family comes from the poor parts of Berlin, and so the war didn't just mean relatives going off to fight in foreign lands, possibly to never return. It meant that every day, another building in your city was gone. It meant never knowing if your work or school or home would just disappear. Where things get really difficult is that my opa, grandfather, fought in the Nazi army. He was born in Germany, but actually lived in Chicago for much of his childhood. His family moved back to Germany in 1938 when they failed to get their visas renewed. Anyway, when my opa was eventually drafted during the final year of the war, he argued that he was a conscientious objector. Because he grew up in America and still had friends there, he did not want to fight. However, the recruiters decided there was an easy problem. This was an easy problem to fix because they could just send him to the Eastern Front instead. There are many stories from my opus time in the army, but the most notable one is probably this. One day while running a message between two camps, he was shot in the stomach with shrapnel. So he was running, heard the pop of the shell, kept running, until he realized his shirt was sticking strangely to his skin and was all wet. He looked down and his stomach was completely torn open. He kept running, though, until he finally made it to the other camp and collapsed. He was then put in a hospital on the outskirts of German-occupied territory and was deemed a low priority. Even if he survived the operation, he wouldn't be fit to fight again anytime soon, and so it was better to treat the less serious cases and get them back on the battlefield rather than waste your time on someone who's probably a lost cause anyway. They did a little bit to staunch the bleeding and temporarily stabilize him, but that was about it. The first day he was wounded, he wrote to his mother, uh, who we call Omi in my family, to tell her what happened. When she got the word that my opa was dying in the hospital, Omi got on the train and went there immediately. She personally chewed the doctor out, yelling, You treat my son. And he did. <laughs> then, when my opa was released from the hospital, he was given leave from the army and put on a train home, only to have the Russians capture the train. He spent the last seven months of the war in a Russian gulag and nearly de- died of deprivation. When he was finally released, he was blind in one eye from malnutrition and needed crutches to walk. God. My oma and opa met after the war, married in 1946, had two children, and then moved to Chicago in 1952. It was still in the wake of World War II, and so my father was bullied for being German. The kids beat nearly every word of the language out of him and washed him in spit until he denied his heritage. So there's now this defiant part of me that wants to proudly reclaim my German heritage. I'm strongly pro-immigrant. I mean, I work in an immigration law firm, for God's sake. <laughs> but this is also tricky because pride in my heritage cannot be fully extracted from the ways German heritage has also been used as part of white supremacy. And so I have had to grapple extensively with issues of collective guilt. I mean, what do you do with the fact that your grandfather, who loved you, was a pacifist, 
was extremely liberal, pro-civil rights, supported queer rights, etc., was still also a Nazi soldier. How do you feel proud about your heritage when your heritage is also connected to the Holocaust and to Trump supporters, Sieg Heiling black and Hispanic protesters? I frequently struggled with how to resolve this. I found solace in the writings of thinkers like Carl Jaspers and Hannah Arendt. I have turned my feelings of collective guilt into a fire that fuels my activism. As Arendt says, Upon them, and only upon them, who are filled with a genuine fear of the inescapable guilt of the human race, can there be any reliance when it comes to fighting fearlessly, uncompromisingly, everywhere, against the incalculable evil that men are capable of bringing about. And I'll continue the letter. However, to finally return to war games, I feel like so much of the media about World War II never gave me room to actually work through these feelings of collective guilt. For the most part, most things fit into one of the two categories that Rob touched on in the most recent episode. You either have this troublingly pro-fascist valorization and fetishization of Nazi soldiers on the Eastern Front, or you have Nazi zombie sniper, where Nazis are literally equivalent to zombies as video game manifestations of pure evil. Neither of these accommodate the weird and complex feelings I struggled with at my opa's funeral, as I looked at a photo of him, age 19, and in his Nazi uniform, placed to another, next to another photo of him from 20 years later, shaking hands with MLK. So I think, as a whole, most media has been incredibly bad at leaving room for the complexities of collective guilt, and I think this election has been symptomatic of that. Of course, the tricky thing about guilt is that we want it to all be as simple and easy to assign to, something, to someone as criminal guilt in the court of law. But collective guilt, personal moral guilt, metaphysical guilt, these are the feelings that actually change behaviors. But they are also forms of guilt that, although there are ways to help this process, someone has to come by it uh, by themselves. However, the problem with leaving space for collective guilt is that, well, it's also really hard to pull off. For one, people still need to be held accountable, and you just have to apply enough pressure to get them to actually begin to address it. Now, I'm the kind of person who thinks that our media affects us, and that media can be used to address issues of collective guilt in a productive way. As much as I love games, I can't think of any games that actually pull it off. In fact, even in other forms of media, I can only think of a few that really pulled it off either like Andre Munch's film, 1963 film Passenger, or some of the novels of Gunther Grass. Cat and Mouse is particularly good. So I'm wondering, do either of you know of any games that actually seem to address issues of collective guilt? Do you even agree that this is something video games need to address? All the best, Niov. God, I just want, I just want Niov to write letters every week. That's <laughs> uh, so well. powerful on so many levels, and and thoughtful and, and interesting and made me pause many, many times, you know, the first time I read it as just like a whole oh, man, there's, there's a lot there. There's so much there. As, as the person who has to edit these down to a manageable size, however, <laughs> they do not turn into one hour radio plays. Uh, Niev, your current pace is fine. Uh, you're doing, you're doing great. Um, no, it is, it is, it is a great letter and, uh, I encourage Nev to, to post the entire unedited form, uh, on the forums cause there, there are some really great details more, and uh, yeah. some good points that, that, that had to get trimmed down for this to be a little more readable. Um, boy, there's a lot here to dive into. Yeah. Um, I guess let's, let's start the, 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 the question at the end, like, are there games that address issues of collective guilt? Immediately, my thoughts actually go to Final Fantasy. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of those games have this 
a fair number of the games in that series have this feeling of collective responsibility and guilt for something bad that has happened or is about to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, Final Fantasy VII, everyone is fighting Shinra and you're part of this resistance, but at the same time, like it's it's kind of clear that everyone's also part of a culture that has sort of built, like has made Shinra kind of the cornerstone of their world. Um, I think 10, for all that I give 10 a lot of shit, uh, 10 is really interesting because Tidus is from a culture that everyone in this new world he finds himself, everyone despises that culture. Yeah. Uh, everyone, like, kind of views that culture as corrupt and evil and responsible for the predicament that they're currently in. So I think Final Fantasy X is kind of interesting on that score because there, the person whose eyes, like, the game is told primarily through the eyes of this character who is being forced to shoulder collective guilt for something that he never would have felt responsible for or or understood was bad. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think that's definitely a an interesting an interesting case of it. Um, Though it may also let Titus off the hook a little yeah. bit. Because yeah. ultimately a lot of the people in that world that he finds themselves are proven to be like kind of superstitious dupes. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't really this other civilization that Titus was a part of that caused everything go to, to go to hell. Um, it was a little more, uh, I don't know, like ancient prophecy. Is sure, the way to, sure. Is the way to put it. It was, it was, it was, it was, more, it was a little more like magic Final Fantasy BS, right? Rather right. than like a clear cause and effect. Uh, but I think that's definitely a case of a game that that sort of does that. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard to think of of a game that that does this well. And I, all I'm thinking of is a game that I think wanted to do this and and failed so completely that we all got really mad about it. Um, I mean, I think Bioshock Infinite was trying to to make a case uh, for collective guilt, and instead was just a, a piece of shit about. <laughs> You know, it was actually more about uh, terrible false equivalencies than <laughs> any actual weight uh, to what it was trying to say. Um, I know, I know, it's like cool to dunk on Bioshock Infinite. We're not no, even but cool it's all, anymore, it, no, but it's, like, but it's also fair. It's all, right? it's all I'm like thinking of right now, thinking about like, oh, okay, something that actually tried to get at the complexities of like, hey, this is wrong, but this is also wrong. So hey, let's let's look at how these things are wrong. But no, it was it it. It didn't do a great job. Well, I, I think it, I think it starts as an effort to sort of analyze that um, that collective guilt of yeah. sort of the 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 high tide of American exceptionalism and imperialism. Um, the city's this perfect expression of it, and then I think where the incoherence is introduced is that Bioshock Infinite starts to shrink away from unequivocal positions. Yeah. And ultimately, that turns it into kind of a silly story about uh, parallel universes, and um, well, and also you know, like was... blaming uh, the oppressed for. Well, that's but, but that's that's kind of what I mean. Is <laughs> yeah. is like that's part of it. It's shrinking away. So once yes, it yes, once it is right. once it has created those two situations as equivalent, the story has nowhere to go except to be like anyway. So magic, but quantum mechanics. Yeah, it's really. You know, no. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that is a case where 
there were some there were some really great ideas there, but it was I think hamstrung by the fact that it wasn't comfortable reaching any firm conclusions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Except that extremism is bad in all forms. Yeah. And didn't really seem interested in considering whether there's a qualitative difference between where the extremists are starting from. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that's... that's It could have been a game about uh, collective guilt, but instead turns into kind of a... Um, uh, an unearned solve to the conscience in yeah. some ways, right? Where it's like, yeah. well, you know, just history's complicated, and, you know, if the shoe had been on the other foot... It wouldn't have been any better. It's like, well, it's I don't like, know. That's not the same thing, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> it ain't the same like, thing. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Oh, man. I kind of wanted to see Finkton's kid get it. I just fucking Bioshock 2 was pretty good. That's Bioshock all. 2 was real good. Maybe we should have ended there. Maybe we should have ended good. there. That was a good game. Yeah. <laughs> Um uh yeah. Other other examples of collective guilt. Um hmm. Well. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm really racking my brain and I mean it, it's it's a topic that not only needs to be dealt with with like a lot of obviously research and thoughtfulness and deftness but but also it, it feels it feels like we're finally in an era of games where you know bigger games are 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 more comfortable making at least at least some stances now i'm not i'm not saying they're they're going hard but there were a couple of games in the last year that were like hey you know what you're you're comfortable making a statement if it's framed in some fairly extreme circumstances, right? Like Mafia 3 is definitely a game about race, but it's framed in this uh, incredibly racist world, in a world that like everybody knows is a very racist world. Everybody knows the South in the 60s was incredibly fucking racist. Like we, we kind of know that. So like it felt comfortable making a stance on that, right? Uh, Watch Dogs 2 at least did some of this, uh, even though it apparently kind of uh, dropped the ball hard. It at least does, you know, make a stance about like sort of like what it's like to be a person of color in tech in San Francisco in this in this time. Um, but it seems like going after something as complicated as, you know, collective guilt is almost still a bridge too far for a lot of games, for a lot of at least bigger games. It, that's That's still a level of political complexity that is that is still still feels a little bit further off than you know an industry that is just only now beginning to be a little bit comfortable making fairly established stances if that that maybe is kind of what's going on here maybe that's why it's so hard to to think of good examples of this yeah and i think something else is that a lot of these games aren't going to put you in the position of someone who has to carry that collective guilt. Yeah. Like, Mafia 3 becomes a really fun way to engage with collective guilt because you're, you're engaging it through the eyes of a super-empowered uh, character who comes from the oppressed class. Yes. Yes. It's fun. So, it's fun to kick fucking yeah. white supremacists' asses. Yes, and it is. these white supremacists you know? are nothing like you. 
right. or any of your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like these are like the real racists, and they're yep. comfort. Most of them are comfortably um, separated from a lot of uh, sort of the uh, sort of softer or what's the what's the way to put it like. Um, Implicit racism. Uh, there's a there's a word. Yeah, like systemic uh, racists, like people who yeah. are who are involved in the system of racism who aren't necessarily running around in KKK rooms. Yeah. Right, right, right. Here it's like, yo, the KKK is dealing heroin on that on that corner. Go kill them. You're like, <laughs> right. Awesome. Yeah. This yeah. is great. Uh, yeah. So I mean, that's a game where it, it to a degree it is also it it is a story of um, you know, America and and blackness in the '60s, but you don't have to be but it's also a revenge the, fantasy yeah 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 and you're you you sort of you, you don't have to be in a position of identifying with the people who are like oppressing uh like people like lincoln you're not like a poor store owner you know who who had to deal with segregation or or like you know bullies of segregation or or something like that. You're not somebody who's put in like kind of a between a rock and a hard place position where you can actually sort of eke out that that those details of something like collective uh, collective guilt, where it's like, hey, maybe you did something good. Maybe you did something against segregation or, or against the racism of this of this time and place. But maybe you didn't do enough. You know, it, something like that. Something a little more complicated like that. Maybe papers, please. Sure, uh, a game sure. that forces you to be a cog in the in the machine, and you really can't do much to soften the edges of it. You get very few places where you can be human, um, and for yeah. the most part, you just have to be a very good, a very efficient cog. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great that, example. Yeah, yeah, like that. That sort of forces you to identify with that um, sort of passive authoritarian mindset. Um, so I think that's an interesting game that touches on that but i think the issue is that the, the what that experience um isn't something i think most people feel collectively responsible for maybe they will now in this brave new world <laughs> yeah but uh at the time it was very easy to be like oh it's like about what it was like to live under a, a soviet satellite yeah. basically yeah um so it, i don't know that it was it was recognized as a particularly uh collective form of guilt um oh man i just i just had another example oh god this is gonna drive me crazy hold on i'm like racking my brain right now <laughs> i'm just like god there's got to be something else something on that level maybe hmm I think it's gone. I think it's gone. All okay. Right. Well, uh, papers, please. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, the closest that we have currently. Maybe, you know. Yeah, I think. Is it something games need to address? I, I definitely think like I, I, games should address all sorts of experiences yeah. Yeah. and thoughts and yes. feelings, and more of them. Great. I think uh, it's a difficult thing to engage with because. I don't know. It's, I think the nature of a lot of, so the nature of a lot of collective guilt, I think, stems from the fact that most people, when the chips are down, are not going to be heroes. 
Right. And that's fine. That's, that's again, heroes are rare. Uh, yeah. Very rare. Most people will do what it takes to survive. Uh, so it's like, you know, is that there, there's the great Eddie Murphy bit uh, from ages and ages ago about how, like, um, you know, when he was when he when he was growing up, like there'd be some black man who'd be like, man, I wish I'd been around when they put me on with like the slave ship. I would kick their ass. Right. Like, you know, I come off the boat. They tell, tell you to be a slave. Like I fucked that dude up. Something like that. And, the, you know, the point is like, yeah, you'd be defiant until the first time you got whipped. And then you just, or maybe <laughs> you, you just get shot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's and that's the thing is is most people, um, aren't going to be defiant. They're not going to be heroes. They're not going to the one person who stands up a great against the great injustice. Most people are going to think, what can I do to avoid pain and take care of my family and loved ones? Right. And that's the fact, which is not great fodder for a video game. Right. Uh, I think this is why paper, yeah. Papers, Please kind of works. But how do you make a game about just deciding to, I don't know, do your job at a munitions plant in Nazi Germany uh, versus, I don't know what, like going to protest and getting killed by the Gestapo? Like... It's not. It's a difficult thing to. It's a difficult thing to simulate. It's a difficult thing to uh, make a compelling game around. We it specializes in in heroic narratives, uh, which I think also means that uh, contributes to the fact that games end up having a very juvenile um, morality. Yeah, often. You know, yeah. it doesn't. The the it, it, good is so easy to do uh, because you're the you're the player character who has all those abilities. Uh, and so, so you just go do it. I don't think most games can address that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking something along the lines. Of, this is probably a, a good place for a lot of interaction, interactive fiction. Um, if you want to, you know, make something gamified, or or at least have something where the player is interacting with the narrative, or has you know sort of different choices in the narrative, that kind of thing. I mean, I I do think it can be done. It's just very unlikely to be done on like the kind of budget of you know, a, a massive AAA game. That's unlikely, but I, I have a lot of faith. Like there are people out there making cool things. 1979, a revolution was apparently pretty, pretty rad, had some, some good things to say. So uh, my, my hope as always is going to be in creators who are figuring out the problems and uh, they'll make it somehow, you know, they'll make, you know, I know even though like arts funding is drying up in America, well, <laughs> it's very uh, depressing. Anyway, we have one more letter, uh, and this comes from Seb. I'll just read it because I read less of that, yeah, la that la last one. Um, so Seb says, Hi, DNR. I had two ideas float up to me uh, while musing on your last podcast. Firstly, Matt Lees from Cool Ghosts convinced me to change uh, use of the word completed with the words done with. You can be done with a game much earlier than you could have completed a game. And although simple, it subtly and effectively convinces me to stop playing games I'm no longer enjoying. Uh, what is best of all is that you can be done with games you've never even played. Uh, secondly, the analysis paralysis you mentioned, I personally feel, is contributed to our, uh, our uncertainty about reliable checkpoints in games. Sure, some games do checkpointing better than others, but time and again, I hit cutscenes that are two plus minutes long and I can't even pause and return to back, uh, return back to later, e.g. when there's someone at the front door. Other games can be worse if they frequently pull unfairly uh, at the completionist itch. 
If you've ever said to yourself, I'll just finish these two side quests and then finish for the night so that when I come back to the game tomorrow, I can get on the main quest line, you know what I mean. I feel that in the modern age, particularly with the growth of mobile platforms where developers cannot expect people to be playing their game uh, for more than a few minutes at a time, uh, there's an increasingly a responsibility for developers to give people escape routes out of their games. Equally, we need to move away from all notion, uh, from the notion that all games need to be completed and just acknowledge that if we're not enjoying the story, gameplay, aesthetics, etc., we might just be done with the game and move on. Thanks and keep up the good work. Seb. I really love <laughs> this completed and done with uh, switcheroo. It's an easy thing. It's like a nice frame you can put around something and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with it. And actually kind of feel like, I've put a stamp on something instead of it just being there in the back of your mind, like, oh, you didn't finish it. Like, you didn't finish your meal. Then there are, you know, starving children out there. Like, the, the guilt of that, you know. Instead, it's like, no, I'm done with this. This is an entertainment product or an artistic product that I got what I needed from it, and now I am done. I am through. Really, really like that. I also do like the idea of having lots of escape routes out of a game, although... I can imagine that being much harder for some types of games than others. Like, a lot of horror games depend on, you know, really kind of immersing you in something and making yes. you feel like there is no escape. You know, that's kind of part of the I don't want I don't want to even launch Alien Isolation unless I can, like, lock the door and just focus on that for two hours. <laughs> right, right. Like, and that's, and that's part of that experience. Like, so I, I, I agree that, like, you know, some sort of, conceit to uh you know escaping out of something briefly will work for a lot of games and the ability to just save anywhere and reload that's a really good thing you know things like that are, are a great idea but it's not always going to work on that sort of you know first level the ui level uh for for every kind of game All right. Well, I guess you agree with me. I'm going to assume yeah, you I mean, agree think, with me. Yeah, That's I'm right. Like, I'm like, I, I basically agree with you. Agree with the letter. It's all great. We're all we're all in this. We're all in this together. And that's why we're going to talk about our weekend projects right now. So, Rob, are you watching or reading anything uh, special right now? So, yesterday, um, I just got... There's a, few, there's a few things I want to talk about, but I need to give, I need to give Riverdale... Uh, a little more time before okay. I can talk about it. I need to I need to see like more than one episode before I can truly dive into that. Um, so yes, I did watch an odd movie. Uh, I watched Superman Returns. Ah uh ha -huh. ha! For some reason, this came up last night in a conversation as well. So please go on. So the rap I'd always heard on Superman Returns was that it's a really boring movie. <laughs> it's it's. It's kind of like the, the the Star Trek, the motionless picture uh, problem. <laughs> nice. And a bit like with Star Trek, um, I think that is an unfair maligning of something that's actually trying to do something far more interesting in its space. Sure. Uh, I actually I actually really like the first Star Trek movie. Uh, it's, it's almost a Kubrickian take on mm. sci-fi. It so badly wants to be about the grandeur of space and the majesty of spaceships and all this stuff. Um, that, yeah, the movie takes its time. It, it, it has some great shots. Uh, I think that is, is actually worth it. I think that, I think that long sequence of them slowly going around the, uh, the Enterprise in the shipyard 
is almost worth the price of mission itself. It's gorgeous. Yeah. 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 The the whole like them putting the band back together and 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 taking back to the stars. I think it's 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 all great. Uh, it has flaws. Superman Returns. It's true. It's not a. It doesn't have any of the like. It's so different from basically the Marvel template that everyone is now using. Yeah. Of like really simple three act structure, uh, a big punch up to punctuate every single one of those acts, <laughs> uh, a few like exchanges to show like character development and shifting relationships, and then a really big punch up at the end that somehow solves all those complicated problems. Um, Superman Returns is kind of there's not much action in it it's right. it's more just about like Superman comes back from five years out at the ruins of Krypton he leaves the entire world behind nobody knows where he is and he comes back and the world has moved on the relationships that were static and that he thought he could like that would not change um, they've all changed. Uh, he no longer has his place in the world. He no longer uh, has Lois Lane. Um, and he has to sort of reestablish himself in his old life uh, after he's sort of broken trust with everyone. And it becomes sort of an exploration of like, well, what does that mean in this context? Like, what does... What does Superman's relationships look like when they've now actually advanced beyond the really simple setup of, uh, you know, he pines after Lois Lane as Clark Kent and Lois Lane is in love with Superman. All that's happened. It's done. It's over. Now what? Yeah. She's moved on. She's in a relationship. Um, she's a single. She's a single mom about to about to be married. Uh, and it's just a really human scale superhero story. And it is a long superhero story. Like, yeah. maybe this is part of the problem. Like, it is a two and a half hour movie <laughs> um, where there's not a ton of, of fighting, but there's a lot of talking. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of Superman doing, um, you know, not, not fighting people, but just doing superhero stuff, you know, saving, saving a, lives, doing a passenger mostly. liner. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. He's, he becomes the, the do gooder that Superman is supposed to be. I'll tell you this. I sort of secretly love this movie. I'm not going to lie. And like, I've never understood. You've seen it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I saw it in theaters and then I've seen it like multiple times since. Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, you secretly love it. Yeah, I do. And like people shit on it all the time. And I'm always like, I don't think it's perfect. It it has issues. No, No question. Like, I do think the pacing is maybe a little off. And, you know, it is true that this is a movie that, um, God, on the waterfront, the two stars of On the Waterfront. Uh, oh, uh, Brando. Yeah, Brando and oh god, what's that his name? other guy? Uh, oh. No, no, no. Oh, what's the name of the guy he's in the cab with? Uh. No, no, no. Uh, the female lead of On the Waterfront is actually the the grandmother, the the old lady that. What? The, no. Yes, it's her. I'm just dead serious. On the Waterfront. Oh my god. Uh, I just need her name because it's gonna drive me completely out of my goddamn mind if I don't. Uh come on. Come on, Wikipedia. <laughs> it's like, it's, of course, Wikipedia is just telling me all about the... Uh, Eva Marie Saint, of course. 
Uh, she's actually in this movie. And uh, at the time, it was just on every like sort of snooty critic's lips, like, this is their end. You know, this is the last movie they'll be in together, this piece of shit. And I always was like, look, man, and there's some goofy shit in this movie. I, I, the whole thing with, you know, with, um, what's his face who was in the X-Men movies, uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the most exciting thing, but I liked uh, that it was sort of a... Marston? Yes, James Marston. I, yeah. I didn't, he wasn't super... Oh, no, I, I, I did like that. No, I did like that. Okay, yeah. here's here's why I like Okay, that. okay, okay, go on. Because we have seen this in so many freaking movies. The protagonist comes back. The love interest is with another man. Yeah. That love interest, that, that other man has to be made into a douchebag. Has right. to be a bad guy. So that, like, the protagonist can get the girl in the end, all this stuff. This movie doesn't do any of that. You're right. You're right. The guy is a good guy. He's all right. Like, and he helps. And he helps out at the end. It's true. Yeah. It's true. And his only interest, like, he doesn't have any reservations about, um, you know, marrying Lois. And he's already a father to her son. Uh, yeah. Like, he yeah. is dad in that family. He's, he's, he's been around for the hard stuff of, of being, a, being part of a family. Yeah. Uh, so I actually really love that... He's sort of set up to be someone that like has to be destroyed to make way for the <laughs> the pair that's matched uh, by destiny that they have to be together, and then the end. No, it it just can't work that way. Like yeah. he and Lois now have like five years of history, and they're together. And Superman coming back doesn't entirely change that. Yeah. Uh, so I actually really love that. Like his character is not super exciting, but that's it's not what meant it is. To be. Yeah, for it's me, not I'm meant not. To be. I'm not like I like that they did that with the story too. I like that this whole story is this sort of like weirdly domestic story that ha- happens to have these superhero sort of trappings yes. around it. Like that's what's awesome about this movie. But I, I just didn't love him. I just didn't love that character. Like he's fine. He's fine. He, I just feel like he's like oh the guy. That's fine. Whatever. Uh, but I I just think it's like a movie a lot of people sort of slept on and they were like the first really awesome superhero movie since, you know, arguably the early 2000s X-Men, but like, you know, Iron Man and the Marvel template and everybody loves that shit and everybody takes a big old poop on Superman Returns. And I was like, this is actually kind of good, y'all. Like, yep. Also, yeah. Kevin Spacey. Oh. Come on. Just spacing his ass off. Oh, just. spacing the shit out of that movie. It was great. <laughs> oh man, you just you you need you need a weird amoral villain. Yes, man. yeah. Spacey. Like, the weirdness is real. Yeah, it's it's like, so good. It's just so good. The vanity. Apparently, he. <laughs> I remember watching this on like a late night talk show at the time. In order to like get into the role and like intimidate Brandon Ruth a little bit, he would like drive around on set in a golf cart dragging like a Superman doll. <laughs> like, like that's the sort of shit. That's amazing. So dumb and weird. <laughs> like uh, dumb again, weird shit. Such, like oh god, there's just weird details. Like and maybe this contributes to the movie being too long, <laughs> but just weird stuff like the henchman guarding Lois and her son. Her son starts plinking away at the piano. Yeah. And the henchman sits down next to him and starts playing the piano with him. Yeah. There's just like a weird human element to the whole movie. Like a very human. Yeah. You know, the weirdness of life seeps in despite the fact this is a massive budget superhero movie. And that's yeah, I, I, great. I, I can't, yes, yes. The yeah. weirdness of life seeps in. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. So many of these movies feel like 
completely insulated from like the weirdness of of normality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just the just the weird little odd details you notice in everyday life or personal tics and all that like every character is so on message for what their character is, right? Yeah. Like and Superman returns just feels like you never quite know what's going to happen in scenes with these characters. Yeah. Yes. Be- because like even though they're all pretty simple and straightforward characters, they feel just human and just real enough that they might surprise you. And that makes it really exciting. I almost feel like if this exact movie came out today, it would be more yes. warmly received. I really think it would be more more warmly received because if it's like anti-Marvel template, like just so, so Celebrated. exactly not what people are, I think, starting to get a little tired oh. of. Well, this is, I mean, they almost did that with Iron Man 3. Right, yes, like Iron yes, Man three, two thirds of that movie is basically like, what if Tony Stark is just dealing with bad PTSD? Yeah, doesn't really like himself, and is thrown to the middle of nowhere without any powers. Yes, what Which happened? Is, it's the best Iron Man for sure in my book, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to argue against that. That, um, yeah, I mean, I, I secretly like, you know, I would kill for. <laughs> I would kill for a Thor that is basically like Thor and Loki talking about the relationship with their parents. Yes, yes, like, yes, yes. Like, like just <laughs> a movie that is like just basically like Thor, Loki, one set play, and other characters come on and off the stage at times, but like predominantly it's those two. God, that would um, be so good. Yeah, I mean, this is yes, and I, I totally agree. I think Superman Returns. The problem is it emerges in this era when superhero movies are rare and people have this idea of what a superhero is supposed to a superhero movie is supposed to be and guess what it's marvel um and this came now, out the same year as that awful x-men movie too the really bad one uh well i think the x3 x3 yeah the, the i didn't even shitty, watch that one. shitty one that, yeah that's the one where they tried to basically speed run through the entire x-men mythos right in yes. like the course of a movie yes and those first two were, were quite good you know they were they were good movies they were pretty much the only like really great superhero movies of that era and I then this came is, out one is great i mean two yeah. is great and then, and then it turns into a superhero movie it's like oh shit we got to put everyone in this base and yeah. have this giant punch up that's definitely and, true yeah uh, <laughs> What is it? Brian Cox is going to take about like an hour and a half to die and oh. have a have a send off scene with every major character. And then then it sets up for like something brilliant and amazing. And then it like it's just a fart noise for two hours in 2006's yeah. X3. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and I, I do think like, Superman Returns is Brian Singer. It is. Um, I think he got so... pulled off of that to do this. So maybe that's <laughs> a maybe little that's bit why. of what was going on there. Yeah. And then he sort of writes the ship with, I think, because I think he was behind First Class. Um, I think he, he was somewhere in there. Yeah, he, he definitely was great. involved on some level. Uh, dude yeah. dude knows how to make a pretty good superhero movie. That's all. You know, that's pretty cool. But I totally agree. Like, if this came out today, people would be like, what an interesting and novel take on superhero movies. But yes. it sort of felt like at the time, it was like, this is the boring and dumb one. Why would they yep. make this? <laughs> it's a Which, little sad. I'm yeah, all about the revival. The you know, 11 years later revival well, God, of like, and it's such movie. a faithful revival. Like they're basically trying to ba- like continue with what they established with the Christopher Reeve movies. Yeah, yeah. With Brandon Ruth, um, who looked. 
kind of you oh, know damn. like Christopher Reeve like he actually had the qualities of him you know yeah yeah so. uh yeah but i just thought like, the credit sequence like everything looks and sounds like one of those old school movies the entire movie shot actually with a really like warm nostalgic um yeah. palette like the movie the movie kind of looks like sort of the way we shoot the way modern color movies tend to shoot the 30s, right? Sure, like yeah. a little sepia tone. A little warm. Yeah. Yeah. Lots yeah. of like like no stark whites, lots of like cream and yellow and yeah. stuff like that. Uh the entire movie kind of looks that way. And totally. yeah, it's so it was weird. It, it like I, I just because yesterday was was kind of um you know, it sort of felt like the world was going to hell in a handbasket, and I was like, I need some Superman. Yeah. But this one might not be good, but I've got an afternoon to kill, so let's see how it goes. And, like, I really wish there were more movies like it. Hell Secret yes. success. It's on Netflix right so now. Glad. Check it out. I am so glad. When you when I saw this on our little doc, I was like, yeah. <laughs> and it came up randomly in conversation last night with a friend, too, who was like, you know, talking about her boyfriend and like how they both secretly were like lovers of Superman Returns and only ever admitted it to each other, you know, Keepers. Late. And it's like, hell yep. yeah. Now you keep that man. That's good. <laughs> That's the the, the awesome. henchman playing the piano is like the cat in The Witcher 3. Yes. Oh. Just such a chef kiss moment, you know. Oh, perfect, yep. perfect. Um, I have a couple of books I'm reading, but again, I I'm gonna wait till I actually finish them till I talk about them. So, my pick is actually also sort of a superhero thing that is, I think, a thousand times smarter than I thought it would be. Um, and that is something I've been obsessively watching with my girlfriend, and it's Avatar: The Last Airbender, the Nickelodeon series from like. I think around this era, actually, like early 2000s, maybe mid 2000s, um, you know, she watched all of Korra and I just sort of, yeah, whatever. Uh, she watched it sort of when I was out. And then she started watching this because she heard like, oh, this is actually like a really incredibly good, well-written, well-paced, interesting and thoughtful, you know, cartoon, uh, you know, full on Nickelodeon cartoon. This is not on like Adult Swim where it's like, actually, it's for adults. Um no, this, is the, this is a kid's show, and it's fucking phenomenal. It, it, it has really interesting, memorable characters who are all sort of assembled uh, during a time of war, and they don't shy away from, you know, some really nasty things that happen in wars. They don't shy away from refugees. They don't shy away from class warfare. They don't shy away from a lot of, like, really, really heavy topics that they treat with a lot of dignity and weight. Uh, and it's, you know, it's sort of a... Um, it's an American series that was sort of inspired by anime, but it's not anime at all. Like, the, it looks like anime. It looks like that sort of tradition of animation uh, and that sort of, you know, slightly exaggerated cartoon style and, like, the way the characters yeah. look. But it's not. In its writing, it is, like, a, a really fucking good adventure series with characters that are awesome and noble, but sometimes they fuck up. You know, sometimes they get angry. Sometimes they do bad things with their power. Um God, it is just so good and just so complicated. And that's maybe the thing I like about it the most. How, so how far are you? I just, just, just last night finished the second uh, season. So I'm just beginning the third season. I just finished the Book of Earth. Uh, and I actually only started in sort of halfway through the first season. So, you know, she had been watching it. And it was one of those things where she's watching this thing all the time. And I'm like, oh, I'm curious. You know, I'll sit down and watch some of it. And like, I am hooked. I am so hooked. So you, you've so been through it. all the bossing say stuff. 
Yes, just finished with the Boston okay, yeah. stuff. Yeah, I think that's the best season. Okay. Um, oh okay. my god, that season! It's like, so good. Like where I like I had been sort of on the knife's edge with the series. It started to win me over at the end of the first season because sure. it has kind of a one hell of an ending. Uh, oh with yeah. A series of uh, like massive events at the uh, at the North Pole. Um, but season two. The Zuko Alone episode. Oh, so good. I, I like the moment the show just like straight up was like, like, look what we can do. Yeah. And breaks entirely from its template yeah. and makes an episode that stands completely apart from the rest of the series. Yeah. Totally completely different. Um, largely silent uh, for, for what tends to be a very cheery, chatty show. Um, yeah, just an utter masterpiece of an episode. And the moment <laughs> that I saw that episode, I was like, Okay, I think these people can do anything. Like, yep. I don't know where this is going anymore. <laughs> and it goes to Ba Sing Se and goes to some incredible places. Um, and again, things about the weirdness of life uh, yes. slipping through. Like, yeah. uh, the fact that the main char- two of the main characters, um, Uncle Iroh and Prince Zuko, end up, like, working in a tea shop. <laughs> yeah. uh, undercover. And just basically, like... It almost feels like they completely forget what they're supposed to be doing. Like, there's, like, the entire Ba Sing Se sequence. Like, so Ba Sing Se in, in, in the series is um, it's sort of the last free city in some ways. The last stronghold of the last free empire. And it's, it's this, like, the rest of the world has been touched by this war. But in the city, it still kind of feels like nothing can, nothing can ever happen there. Uh, it's very complacent, and I feel like everything in that sequence, everything, all the characters in this in this series are brought together in Ba Sing Se, and are there for a surprisingly long period of time. Yeah, it's like pretty much half the season, almost. And it yeah. all feels kind of dreamlike, yeah. in a weird way. Like, it's this weird idol in the middle of a pretty intense, like, series of politics and war. It's this, it's this war epic, and yet in Ba Sing Se, the series of bizarre events and uh, sort of aimless relationships uh, start to unfold in a, in a way that I really, really like. Yeah. God, yeah. It's it's also, uh, just even aside from, from the writing itself, which I think is really good, really, really good, and, and not even just sort of in a just-for-a-kids show sort of way. Like, no, it's, it's smart as hell. And, like, the way they weave jokes in as well is actually, like, smart as hell uh, in, in a lot of these episodes. Um, it also does a thing for me that incredibly is it's incredibly rare outside of games. Uh, and that is sort of presents this like fantastic universe, this really bizarre and weird and beautiful universe that I just want to spend time in. And that's yeah. and that's so much of what I like to do in games. Like that is that is my you know number one motivation uh, sort of in playing any games is like really like, Escaping into an interesting and weird and bizarre and beautiful world that's, like, impossible, you know, somehow in my real life. Uh, or, or some version of a world that's it's beautiful or different or interesting in some way. And this show really does that for me. And I think it is because of, of what you were mentioning a minute ago about, like, the weirdness of everyday life. Like, being allowed to seep in. It doesn't feel like a, you know, this is, this is the world. These things happen here. It's like, oh, this is the world. And there's weird shit all the time. And, like, there's, you know life is weird and people say weird stuff sometimes and people have weird feelings sometimes and and like bizarre little details are what make a place feel lived in and what make a place feel like you could actually spend time there and they do it so so well you know with the art and just with the 
you know, the sort of attention to detail that the characters have. They're all sort of very thoughtful little, yes. you know, they're kids, but they're like incredibly thoughtful and smart. And, you know, of course, because it's it's a show about, you know, heroes doing heroic things. But uh, they they really kind of nail that element. And I, I love that about yeah. this. You know, I it really love it. Earns, it really earns that coming of age aspect to it because so many of these characters carry this weight of expectation, yeah. but they don't know how to... They don't know how to carry it. You know what I mean? Like, what things are they really driven to do for themselves and what things have just been forced onto them, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, Aang has to become this, like, he has to become this sort of savior of the world. He has to become this, like, almost demigod-like magical figure. Um, but he doesn't really want to be. Right. Like, he's too fascinated by the world. He's too amused by it. Um, I think, like, my like my character, my, my anime boy, Heartthrob, is, of course, Zuko. Like, oh, of course. Like, not even a good question. Good boy Zuko. Yes. Oh, <laughs> such a good boy, but so broken. <laughs> oh, um, he is. He is. And, like, he, where he starts out, where he's basically the spoiled prince, disgraced, easily about to become a war criminal in a pretty <laughs> serious way. Totally. Uh, and he's pursuing this path and he doesn't really ever question it. He doesn't like, he doesn't know how to question it, but like, and these things pay off so incredibly beautifully. Like, yeah. Like when for a while it feels like maybe he could just never go back and just become a guy working in a tea shop, uh, for, for the rest of his life in, in Ba Sing Se. Um, the argument when, 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 when uncle Iroh catches him, uh, at the end of the season, second season, um, trying to uh, trying to like what is it like steal the sky bison or whatever? Yes. Um, and Iro just detonates at him. Like, okay, yeah. what's your plan after yep. this? This is what like he says. This is what you do. You do not think. <laughs> uh, and it's just the other exchange that is so like intense and emotional and angry but it's got this weight of two seasons of tv tv behind it uh like 35 episodes of these two characters building towards this moment where finally the kindly grandfatherly character cuts the shit yeah and like really late like really sp- says it speaks his mind and it's it's an incredibly powerful moment. God damn, I love this series. Oh, yeah. Weird thing, I'm actually re- rewatching it right now. Oh, are you? Uh, yeah. I'm. This is this is weird. We're. Uh, oh my goodness, we're like synced up. We're like besties. I was gonna say uh, we're on the same cycle, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just started pitch too, and we'll talk about that. I'm sure at some right. point, but yeah, yeah. All right. So next week we're tr- we're bringing back the My Lola ads, huh? Uh, Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, no. I, I just started rewatching it because, like, I'd been sort of hankering for it, and I, I actually need to watch Korra. I've never watched Korra. Oh, yeah. um, my girlfriend betrayed me. Watched all oh. of it without me. Oh. Well, I mean, so did um, mine. So you know. Yeah, but you, but you, you guys never relationship around Avatar. Like we did. It's true. So like That's her a watching, good point. her watching Korra, like basically an affair. Uh oh. Yeah. She yeah. had an affair with Korra. That's, yeah, that's and rough. it sounds like so my jam, too. Like yeah. fucking jazz age magical bullshit. Hell yeah. With all the politics. Apparently it's like way yes. more about political yes. machinations even. Oh, so good. I'm excited to watch that and probably drag my girlfriend through a second time. Because she watched Korra first, so uh, we'll see. We'll see. But I'm really enjoying this. This is, this is really, God, it's so good. And I'm happy I'm, 
that it's there. <laughs> I'm having trouble getting through the first season again, though. Like, mm. I'm a, I'm a little more patient for it because like it's it's lighthearted and I know it's coming. But man, that first time through, that first season felt like little kid road trip movie. Sure. And <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, man, Zuko needs to show up and fuck these people up and yep. make something happen. We need good boy is- Zuko. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. Good thing he does pretty pretty soon. So you know, yeah, that helps. That helps a lot. Oh, thank you, Zuko. I think with that, uh, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idol Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idol Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. Yes, you can, Rob. And if you have a moment, dear listeners, thank you so much, first of all, for listening to us. And if you have a quick moment, please do go ahead and tell your friends. Tell the person that you're currently in a fight about The Last Airbender with. Tell whoever it is that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend. Uh, Word of mouth helps us out so, so much. We really appreciate it, and we also appreciate it. If you go ahead and go onto iTunes and just... Give us a little rating. Give us a little write-up. That helps us out so, so much, too. So thank you. Please do that if you get a second. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. <laughs>